welcome to The Breadwinners. I'm Jennifer Owens. I'm Rachel Ellison. This is a show where we talk about everything work and family and really only the best companies. (laughs) That's never true. But today it is true for our big season for finale. We are joined today by the inestimable founder, fighter, and fan of Working Mothers Everywhere, Carol Evans. Welcome to The Breadwinners, Carol. Welcome. Thank you so much, Jennifer and Raquel. So longtime listeners of The Breadwinners may know that I reference Carol's work at the drop of a hat. (laughs) So, you know, maybe you don't need an intro, but in a nutshell, Carol was part of the team that launched Working Mother Magazine in 1978. And then We talk about that a lot, but we're going to go a little in the future to 1986 when she created what we're going to talk about today, which is the Working Mother Best Companies. And it's many sisters, including best companies for multicultural women, best law firms for women. At one point we did best companies for hourly workers. She would go on to lead a lot of other iconic titles before returning to buy Working Mother in 2001, becoming the first and only Working Mother to own Working Mother and make it into Working Mother Media. It lasted 44 years, and that is kind of an awesome but also kind of sad point of reference there, Carol. (laughs) I know. I'm very weepy about it. But, you know, you grew that, you know, at the time, the business that you had bought into Working Mother Media, you built out its content and its research and its event businesses. You acquired the National Association for Female Executives and Diversity Best Practices. And you know the one, um, you've won many awards and, and honored many times, but in fact, I got the chance to pick up an award for you once. So I got to pretend I was Carol Evans for, for a hot second at SHRM. But in 2012, Do you remember that you were named to Ad Age's 100 Most Influential Women in Advertising? Yes, that was was really great. (laughs) That's really cool. So just a little background of, you know, who Carol is and, and why we're talking today. But and then today she serves as CEO and executive director of Share Cancer Support, which serves women with breast, ovarian, uterine. Is it how do you say endometrial? Is that mm-hmm. yes. cervical and metastatic breast cancer? So, all right. Now that our time is up, thanks for so much for joining us, Carol. So, before we go back in time, which we're always going in the time machine, we're going to take a break for our sponsors. And we're back, and we're ready to get back into our time machine. So, back to 1985. So, what was happening at Working Mother back then? And where were we as a a media entity and leading into what was the thinking behind doing a best companies list? Well, we had gotten pretty far. You know, in 1978, we launched as a one-shot. It was the brainchild of Vivian Cadden, who was, you know, like a social justice person back in the union busting times. And she was, her husband was a a union organizer. Anyway, she thought of this idea of having a magazine just for working mothers and they tried it and it was a huge success. And then, you know, it just kept growing and growing and from one issue to six to 12 and all this great stuff. Yeah. The typical thing where, you know, you try, you get a small run, like almost like TV shows, you get a small mid season replacement and then, you know, they, they buy in for the full thing. Oh yeah. Yeah, so that happened in those years, and uh, it was really a exciting time because we were a small magazine owned by a great big magazine, McCall Publishing Company. So we had lots of resources, but we had to find our way because, you know, they had never launched a brand new magazine before. So it was just it was marvelous. And by 1985, we were doing a few events. We were. We had really found our voice. We knew that what we wanted to do was to make life better for working mothers, not just to be, you know, a a magazine that they that was entertaining. We really wanted to make a difference. So we were trying to find a way to get very, very concrete. And uh, Vivian Cadden, again, who was still with us at that time, she had the idea of comparing companies to each other. And her basic premise was if you um, have Joe and Jim compete for an award, they will all do better at what you want. (laughs) Smart. 
And all the CEOs back then were Joe and Jim. There weren't any Janes, you know? Yeah. <laughs> right. And so, uh, and she just played off of the kind of ego and the, the kind of competitiveness of the CEOs. And it was a, it was a really smart idea because the, the first thing she did was just to do a survey of who was doing anything for working mothers. Yeah. <laughs> what companies were paying any attention to this relatively unheralded demographic? And what she found was that there were companies who were being very progressive, but they were few and far between. And she only found 20 companies that first year that were any that were worth remarking about. That's interesting. I want to dive in a little bit deeper to how did she decide? What what were the criteria used to judge those 20? It was really simple. It was basically five points. Mm -hmm. And they asked all the um, companies if they were doing anything for childcare, what they were doing for maternity leave, Mm -hmm. and if they had services for women that were like concierge services. And I think there was one, maybe there was, there were two other, but I can't remember what they were, but they were very basic kinds of things. And, and most companies weren't doing any of that, but there were these 20 companies who were doing quite a bit, actually, you know, they all got really good scores and Mm. it was on a five point scale and it was like five hearts. (laughs) Oh, that's right. That's right. You had to get five hearts to be, no, you could get up to the, get three to five hearts to be on the list. So it was very, very sweet. And it wasn't very, you know, um, it wasn't a lot of data. Like later, we just had reams and reams and reams of data. (laughs) (laughs) And this is five data points. Right, right. That's true. That's very true. But interestingly, two of the companies that made it on that list that first year stayed on the list all the years of the list forever and ever. And that was IBM and Johnson & Johnson. Hmm. And still progressive, you know, still, you know, we would still go to them to ask them, where was the future going? Like yes. 30 years later, because Absolutely. do you know how many times I had to look at that first issue? Because I had to do the anniversary issue twice. You're bringing me PTSD with those hmm. hearts and all that. So, yeah. We did the anniversary every 10 years. So, you know, that was, oh, you know, oh, oh um, hello. We did it every five years. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> We're in publishing. You know, we need an event. So <laughs> That's right. I it was every five years. You're right. Well, anyway. So the first, this is always the time where I'll pop quiz uh, Raquel. So uh-huh. I won't do it this time. This is what the best companies offered that first year. Mm. The average. Six weeks of partially paid maternity leave, four hmm. percent offered paternity leave, and seven offered on-site childcare, which at the time was like, oh, you know, that's the gold standard. And all of these things, I mean, it was shocking to get to see that anybody was doing anything. And so I'm gonna send to you, Raquel, what the last data I could find, which was from 2019. Okay. By 2019, there were 100 best companies, and they offered an average of 11 weeks fully paid maternity leave. That's four weeks longer than it was five years ago, and nearly three times as much as the national average. 57% give all parents equal leave, regardless of gender. 81% let employees phase back into the work gradually after parental leave for an average of 13 weeks. 41% have a program to rehire moms who have been out of the workforce for at least three years. Yeah, I think that's really, you know, it was a big, huge leap forward in those years. And some of the things that were, that you're citing here in 2019 weren't even thought of back in 1986, like gender neutral parental leave was really, uh, was very, very, unknown in 1986. And it really became a a big thing for all companies. And phase back, nobody had really (laughs) thought of phase back. You know, you just went out for your six weeks, if you were lucky, right back and you had to come back full time, full steam, full head. And phase back is such a wonderfully humane way of approaching parental leave. And then, you know, the childcare on site was such a huge thing because the big corporations that had big headquarters back then, they would create a giant 
footprint for the childcare center. And it was wonderful. I remember um, one of our companies, I think it was Abbott, had 700 children in their childcare center on site. You know, huge companies with huge workforces and big headquarters. That's what led to that. So it, it got to be the point where everyone thought that you had to have an on site childcare center to make the list. And that wasn't true. It was never true. That's before. right. I remember yeah. those conversations, right? And then, like, Having I had Owen when I had just joined Working Mother, and so he was tiny. And what I loved was people talking about giving you subsidies because I had previously, when I had Gwen, I worked at Condé Nast, and their on site childcare, which sounded great when I was single, was in Times Square. And there was no way I was going to take my <laughs> tiny newborn from Brooklyn to Times, you know, it just it didn't work with my life to yeah, do it that way. And and New York City was particularly hard because of that. Nobody wanted to take their child to Times Square anyway. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> not their little itty bitty baby. But but that's why back, backup childcare became so popular. Was if you were if the child was sick or if you had an emergency, then you would get backup. I always felt that that I preferred subsidies because yeah. backup just seemed to be an emergency situation, which everybody should have. But uh, but it was very popular. Mm. Yeah. Did you ever have access to childcare in your work life, Raquel? Like through an employer? No. No. Yeah. Me need, I mean, that was it. That was the only time was was Condé Nast. And it was really nice, but it's like, ooh, this seems yeah. a lot of. I never you know, did either. I don't need to go buy the off brand Spider Man on the way to <laughs> childcare every day. <laughs> I don't need that. My baby Bjorn on the subway. Like, no, 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 no. I mean, really, what child yeah. wants to hear that? I, nobody yeah. needs to hear that, you know. So, well, can we talk a little bit about the competitive nature of these yeah. companies? Because I remember being on many difficult calls and presentations, like also very happy ones. But, you know, we we also had a benchmarking aspect of this where you could see how the companies did versus the group and do some cuts of the data for them. And so when a company fell out of the top 10 or on the list altogether, those were some tough calls. But also I vividly remember seeing HR and work-life executives kind of pleased to have somebody outside of their company say, see, this mm -hmm. is what we told you. We told right. you this. Yeah, it was great because there were work-life professionals in charge of these programs. And when they saw they were dropping down the list, I mean, because we always told them what rank they were, even though we didn't publish the, the ranking except the top 10, but they would see their, their numbers fall. They knew what kind of programs weren't being ad added to keep up with uh, you know, important trends, or they saw one CEO cut back on support. So they knew. And so they would, <laughs> it was like, wink, wink. They would call them and say, I'm sorry, but you know, you're, 98, you're going to fall off the list next year. And they'd be like, oh, or we call them and say you fell off the list. And they'd be like, oh, good. We <laughs> need some internal help to get this back on track. And so then we would just put together all the data for them and they'd take it to their uh, leaders and say, we, we are doing terrible at this. And look, Working Mother Magazine says so. So it was wonderful. <laughs> it was kind of like, you know, the, the secret behind the door. We, they wanted, you know, better services for their employees and we could prove that they were not staying competitive. So yeah, that was a delight in terms of competition too. Oh my gosh, the companies really, really cared about this and they would take great pains to, you know, keep track of their competitors. So, you know, Colgate, Palmolive versus Procter & Gamble, they would know everything about what their competitors were doing by reading the data in our list as, as well as they could interpret. So, you know, that was, that was always fun because it wasn't just being one of the hundred best, it was being one of the hundred best in your competitive set. Mm, right. You know, we had 15 hospitals on the list most years, and that was because the hospitals were very, very eager to prove that they were great places for, for their women employees. And because, because women patients are so important to them. So, yeah. So it was really interesting to see that how the competitive sets kind of played out and, and moved ahead. Hmm. How did the application change over the years? I'm guessing it wasn't exactly the same 
when you started as as where you ended up? No, hardly. I mean, it started as, you know, who's doing what? How can we find them? And then we turned it eventually, I mean, pretty quickly, we turned it into a real data data collection process and the companies had to apply. They were on their best behavior with their data because if we we published, you know, essential numbers and if we published a number that wasn't known by their employees or didn't Oh, yeah. yeah, The employees, they'd hear about it like, we don't have 12 weeks of maternity leave. Oh, wow. I don't get this. And sometimes the companies at that stage, they were giving different benefits to their executives. And so the, you know, the middle managers would be like, wait a minute, we don't have any of this. And that was a great way to push the companies forward was to make these benefits available to all that was huge. The other thing was, that, and this was a great trick that we pulled, and Jennifer was you know, <laughs> very familiar with this. It was really important that they didn't just brag about benefits that they had on the books. We realized that some companies were putting benefits on the books and not offering them. Oh, yeah. Employees. Yeah. So a, an employee would be like, I read the employee handbook and I didn't see that. It was like putting your benefits under a bushel. And so we said, you have to prove usage and oh. how many use this benefit. And when we made that change, that was quite, uh, you know, quite a way in. When we made that change on usage, it changed everything because the companies were kind of like called out. And if they didn't have the usage, they didn't make the list anymore. I remember... <laughs> I don't know, Jennifer, if you remember this, but I remember going to Ford Motor Company and they said, we can't track usage. And I said, well, then you can't make the list because you're not going to make the list if you don't track usage. And so they started tracking usage. And of course, it really wasn't that hard because they had... They have the HR systems, right? Yeah, the SAS, the SAS system, they had it all, all the data, but they didn't want to look at it before (laughs) this. (laughs) Oh my God. Can we please tell the story of... I believe it was you and me. We were at the Marriott Marquis with McDonald's. Do you remember yeah. this one? Yeah. And they they said they wanted to have drinks with us before, like it maybe it must have been the Work Life Congress or something. And they presented us with a two sided one piece of paper, and they said, you know, this is all we're gonna give you for assessing the company. And it was like, and I really held my breath because you know you want McDonald's, and McDonald's is also a an odd company because they have for, for us because it's the headquarters, but then they have all the franchises. So you see the company as this massive company, but the actual, you know, headquarters was a core group of employees, you know, the whole thing, it was yeah. whatever. And you were like, well, that's not going to work. Yeah. I was like, well, that's, that's your criteria, but it doesn't work for us because we have our criteria and it's our list. And yeah, I, I told them they just have to go back and say they weren't going to make the list this year because they couldn't make it with that amount of data. <laughs> yeah, because it's hard because if you let, you know, it's, it's like parenting, you know, you have to be consistent. If you let one company, you know, I'm going to sound rough, like get away with something without giving us data, but somehow, you know, we're going to whisper it to you, but you're not going to be, you know, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. You're just going to give license to everyone else to try to pull the same thing. And that doesn't help the employees in mm-hmm. the end. You have to be really consistent with the companies and you have to draw the line. And we, we also had one other rule that was really difficult to for the companies, which was that if they were sued by women, female employees over <laughs> female issues, that they would automatically be off the list for two years. Yeah. And that really shook up a lot of companies. I won't mention names because, you know. The, the I company, would, but yeah. <laughs> you know, because the, the, the women would sue, they, they, and whether they lost or not, if they were involved in a big lawsuit, that was it. But so we, we had to really stick that rule hard because you know it was very painful for them and of course we had to keep changing the application in that sense you know you think of the topics you do but every year you learn something new like like the like what level of lawsuit because every company gets sued it's a fact of life and so you know we, we have to set levels of what constitutes us kicking you off the lid like just that area you just everything is a rabbit hole that you have to follow and try to strengthen the application in good ways 
Well, you strengthened it a lot. I mean, you mm-hmm. had a lot of very strong ideas. And, you know, interesting about the application process. Thank you for that polite way of saying <laughs> yeah, that. <laughs> more of you were very demanding and insistent. <laughs> Let's put it that way. But, you know, we used to have an outside consultant do it for yep. years and years. And then we realized that we just needed to have a better grasp on the data internally. And so that's when we launched the uh Working Mother Institute under your tutelage. And that's when we were able to bring in all the researchers internally and do the list ourselves, which we did for years and years. What, what much better system for us because we could really gauge the, the fine points of the data because we were yeah. so involved in it. Very true. Mm. Well, so I'm going to name drop right now, yeah. but I once received a call. I was walking the kids down the street to PS29 and it was the White House. Yes. And they Whoa. wanted to know, if, this was the Obama administration era, if we would consider adding a question on paid transparency to the application. Right. As in, because uh, mm-hmm. they had just done, you know, well, not just, but they, you know, Lily Ledbetter was the first law that Obama signed into yes. action. And so they were following up with paycheck fairness. and. So they wanted us to do a question on whether or not companies were you know, giving you a hard time or um, now the word, I, it's early in the morning, the words could leave me, you, that you'd get in trouble for announcing your salary publicly. Yeah, yeah, pay transparency, yeah. And um, so my, <laughs> honestly, my first thought, literally walking down the block was, well, we'll take that under advisement. You don't, <laughs> you know, we don't. You know, you don't tell us what to do, Mr. <laughs> President. Mr. Obama. You know, Mr. Obama's, you know, third tier, you know, <laughs> chief of staff person. You know, and and meanwhile, side note, we got these requests all year long. Our lovely uh, right-hand woman on all things with the best companies, Kristen Willoughby, had an ongoing conversation with all the companies because they'd say, could you ask about this? Or why are you asking about that? And so we would reopen the application every time. But yeah, that, at first I was like, well, you know, get in line, buddy. <laughs> and then uh, then I realized, you know, like, oh, my God, the White House is asking us to ask a question. <laughs> That was a great story. We formed a really great relationship with the White House because of that. And I remember I was asked to, to be the opening act for Michelle Obama on the occasion of the 90th anniversary of the Women's Bureau. And it, oh, was, yeah. it was such a wonderful experience. I opened up with a speech not an opening act like singing, but I opened up with a speech about my own mother and uh, who had been born in 1920, which was the same year that the Women's Bureau was formed. And so I made a parallel of, you know, this, what my mother experienced as a working mother versus the, you know, the kind of development of working mothers in general. And Michelle Obama listened to my speech and loved it. And I remember when I saw her, the only thing I could think of was, Oh my gosh, she's so tall. (laughs) (laughs) These are the things we think about, you know. (laughs) She's wearing flats. Oh my God. Remember, she always wore flats. Oh, kind of her. (laughs) We really did have fun doing all this stuff, you know? (laughs) You look like you were having fun doing this stuff. (laughs) We really were. It was a lot of fun. And you know what? It was fun too, because at some point we decided that we needed to make a lot more of the working mothers that worked for these companies. And we invented the working mother of the year, which was each company at of the 100 best list was able to name a working mother of the year. And then we celebrated all 100 working mothers of the year at our big annual gala. And that just put such a human story to the numbers. Yeah. And so many really just, you know, heartbreaking, wonderful, tragic, happy, you know, everything as human stories are. Do you remember with that, we had a company call us and say that they were nominating trans women to be mother of the year. And did we have a problem with that? And I'm like, no, is she a mom? You know, like whatever. And we got all kinds of coverage for that. And it really just... We I'm like, why would this be an issue? <laughs> yeah, and she spoke at, at one of our conferences for diversity best practices another year. But, you know, uh, in an odd way, it was kind of difficult because the attention that she got led to her having some real difficulty in her 
career because she got oh man spotlight. Yeah, it was very it was very difficult for her, which is what happens sometimes, you know. But yeah, but, yeah. And I remember one of our working mothers of the year passed away from a very difficult. Oh year. yes. And her husband got up and accepted the award for her, and it was just like you know. It was a thousand people in the audience crying. It yeah, was, always crying. Yep, sweet. always tearing up. Yeah, it was so, <laughs> so, so very sweet. Well, so this is where I have to also tell the story of your mandate to cut a hundred questions from the application. Oh yeah, that was fun. Because to your question, Raquel, the, the, what also would happen is that it would just grow. The questions, the questions, and and then it's and each one's a sacred cow. Because yeah, how are you sure. not going to ask about? I care about this. Or if we don't ask about paternity leave, there's no contextual comparison right. to the women. And and then what about adoptive parents? Right. So uh, we ended up cutting 150. It's one of Krista Carruthers and Kristen Willoughby and myself. We'll take it. It's one of our greatest achievements is it that was. we did you 50 better. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> I was so very proud of you because, you know, we're all good at adding questions, but taking questions away was oh. a real challenge. And, you know, we worried about the integrity of the, of the data on a timeline. You know, that was a huge issue too, because we wanted to make sure we had comparisons, but some stuff just got old too. You know, like I remember concierge services, if you had a, you know, a post office and a dry cleaner and a whatever, all these things on site, that was a huge benefit for many years. And then all of a sudden it just became much less and less relevant. Yeah. I think you cut all of those questions out and that was really helpful. Did it as a drop down. That was the greatest achievement was it becomes one question. They can just click it off. That That's okay. actually survey construction tips. Oh, <laughs> so. That's great. Wasn't that wonderful? Oh, very good. So yes, the, uh, the lovely, our lovely research team was very helpful in, in doing some uh, question structure. So, nice. but, and then I used to always tell that I made the same awful joke every year. We had that pre-event at the Work-Life Congress where all the, you know, the the advocates who filled out that, um, all blessings upon them, who filled out the application every year would come and yes. they'd ask her questions or make suggestions. And I'd always say, well, you know, we could cut, you know, about 150 questions if we had federally mandated paid leave in this country. Right. And then right. there'd be a, you know, a sort of, you know, mm-hmm. and I can't believe I can still make that joke. I mean, yeah. what is it freaking going to take to have that here? It's really sad and really sick. I mean, just unbelievable how this country hasn't moved forward. In fact, now we're just moving backwards, as we all know, on women's rights. Hmm. And, you know, someday we might not be able to take contraception, which really, which really appalls me. But, uh, yeah, it's, a, it's hardly believable that we haven't made progress on, you know, mandated paid maternity leave for everyone. And mandated child care, although the federal government does require child care for all of its employees. So that's very, very nice. And they have some fabulous child care centers in these wonderful government buildings in D.C., you know. Yeah, which, you know, that's always it sets a it sets a bar that others, you know, all these things are steps in the right direction. It's just how many steps. Right. <laughs> Too many. Steps. Very tall staircase. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> for sure. And now that we have this, you know, an attack on basic women's rights, it feels like it's going to set back all of this work because if we can't have, you know, some of the control of our bodies or anything like that, then how do we offer, you know, mandated paid maternity leave and, you know, all the childcare benefits that we have? I mean, how do we get to that? Yeah, that's a great point. You know, I felt that way with the rise of the Me Too movement, it knocked me on my heels in the sense of how unsafe we still are at work. And here we are, you know, I'd like, oh, wait, we're we're talking like three steps beyond this. I just want bodily safety. And now it's like, I just want bodily autonomy. Right. You know, like, yeah. Yeah. And it's, and so many, so many women want the same thing. You know, it's really a, the majority wish versus the majority rule. And that's what makes me so sad is that women want these benefits for themselves as mothers and for each other as mothers. And they want control over their bodies for each other and for themselves. So, you know, it's like, let the public rule and that's just not happening. So it's sad. 
Well, and meanwhile, the conversations, though, like at the Work-Life Congress, so that would be the winner. We invite the winners and the Working Mothers of the Year for the gala that we would have. And then other companies would come to like, it's a long, long conversation that was started by all of this. But do you have any way to kind of encapsulate the way the conversation changed through this, you know, like what you saw at the events and hearing people make change in a positive way? Yeah, one thing was that at the events first, all the all the top ten speakers were men. Oh wow! <laughs> oh. That, was, that was so indicative. And then gradually, uh, our winners started to realize that hey, we have some really top level women. Maybe oh we should God, share the stage, dude. Yeah, share the stage. Share the spotlight. <laughs> so that was something really funny. But and I think that over the years, it became you know less like oh, we're so grateful for the work you're doing and more like we feel that you can do more. You know, I mean, I, I had to go from being just, you know, cheerleading the companies because so few companies were doing, you know, not very much. I mean, so many companies were doing so little. And so then I had to shift to uh, when it got to be, you know, much more of a acceptable principle, founding principle, then I had to really kind of like, ask the CEOs and talk to the CEOs and use that podium to get people to do more and to not get complacent and to not just stand on their laurels. And Mm. that was the rallying cry was take next steps. What are the next steps? What are the marching orders for what companies should do next? So we had, we went from being kind of laudatory and, and just, you know, grateful to being, you know, warriors and champions of, Mm. of, of change and I think that's really appropriate because, you know, you start small and you then you get your power mm-hmm. from being able to recognize what is not happening and you start to really challenge, you know, where we are. Mm. And then what led you to expand into other variations? So best companies for multicultural w- women, what made you take that leap? Well, what happened was when I bought the company in 2001, you know, I was there for the first 10 years and then I left for 12 years, came back and bought the company and stayed for a long time. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) But what happened was that when I came back in 2001, you know, it was I bought the company three weeks before 9-11. So it was a tumultuous time Mm. to to acquire a company, you know, (laughs) to say the least. (laughs) But I, I, make, I could go into that, but that's a whole other story. But what happened was that the um, I saw that they had developed the list and they had really professionalized it a lot from when I had left. And then I was thinking about how successful it had been. It had gotten to 100 companies and all that. And I decided that this was a model. It wasn't just a one thing phenomenon. It was a model. And the model could be applied almost to anything that needed, you know, a cohesive kind of support for change. Hmm. The first thing that I identified as needing so much work and support were women of color. And they were really just not keeping up in terms of salary and position and promotion. We, they were just not being treated in an equitable manner at all. It was very obvious, it was very apparent, but what to do about this massive problem. So we started the first list for the best companies for women of color. And boy, that's what we called it at first, because we wanted to make a statement, a real statement that multicultural can sound a little bit more soft, but women of color was really, this is the point, this is who we're talking about. And, you know, it was really interesting because a lot of, we consulted with a whole lot of experts in diversity and inclusion about this. And a lot of them said, look, Carol, this is a great idea, but we don't think you're going to even find 10 companies. We were just looking for 10. (laughs) You know, we lowered our standards to 10 because it was such a difficult thing. And they were like, I don't, I think you're going to find zero. Well, (laughs) so we did the kind of methodology where that we started working mothers list which which was you know finding out what people were doing oh boy it was hard it was hard to find 10 because you know if you put representation of women of color 
in the equation at all, it became very difficult because the representation at the top and the middle were was really low. Mm. You know, so we really had to base it at first on programs and policies mm-hmm. instead of representation. And we knew just like, you know, because of what had happened with Working Mother, we knew that we could grow the, you know, the list to to not just be about programs and policies, but we could layer much more in as we developed people's thinking about equity for women of color in the workplace. So yeah, it was a very big challenge. People thought I was crazy. (laughs) The first thing you told me about it was, oh, so this is the list that companies are afraid to win. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Because no one's doing enough and they know they're not doing enough. Oh, that's hilarious. I forgot that. (laughs) (laughs) They were terrified that if they made this list that their women of color employees would call them out. And that happened. Yeah. Women of color would be like, what? We made this list? How could we make this list? Mm. Things are so bad here for us. How could we have made this list? And and then we would explain, you know, seriously that this was based on programs and policies and that we would get to representation soon. Which we eventually did. It still was a rough, you know, when you do those those averages of, you know, not the strongest numbers, but, you know, like at least let's be out there. Yeah. Let's say what it is, and then we can improve yes. from there. Yeah, it was very important. And you layered that representation in, in a really good way because, you know, let's say it would be 8% uh, middle managers were women of oh, color. Drop off. Oh, my gosh. PTSD of those drop off numbers. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. yeah. And then you go up. It'd be 3% it would of corporate executives. Oh, my 3%, gosh. And then, you know, like one, 0% of CEOs would be women of color, of course. Yeah. And, you know, it was just, you could count on, you know, two fingers how many people were women of color CEOs. It was just really, 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 you know, difficult. I mean, it was almost painful to look at those numbers, and we had to share them with the world. And, you know, basically what we said was, these are still the best. Right. You know, I mean, they may have this low representation, they have strong programs, and they're still better than everybody else, period. Mm. So I think that was a shocking thing. And I think that um, it really, you know, we had a lot of really goodwill and good faith with the 100 best Mm -hmm. companies. So they trusted us. And when we did this work, they paid attention. And, you know, I just think that the whole world was starting to look at this and we gave them data. Yeah. Mm. And you sold them on it. I mean, I think that's the the part that, you know, people see the the event, oh, Multicultural Women National Conference. Oh my gosh, that's the best event we ever did every year. Every year. With uh, Janet Wigfield, who would organize the same race, cross race discussions. Yes, yes. Fantastic. We did them every year. The men were their own race. Hilarious joke every year. We just put all the men at one table. <laughs> because they were only like, Seven of them. Yeah. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Who came? They were the brave ones. The first year there were two men and we put them in a little room by themselves to have a breakout session. <laughs> it was really fun. And then of course we did the men's panel at the Women of Color Conference. And I gotta tell you, those first five years of that, the men made some horrific mistakes on stage. Yeah. And they got called out for it by the women in the audience. It was pretty good. It was really good. Uh, but But the best the best getting to be on stage with laquanda murray my one of my favorite people in the world and uh presenting awards and i just loved it what a great experience is to be in this room of all these wonderful women executives talking about where we need to go what we need to be doing Mm. and um doing it in a, a way that's that's theirs you know It's not mine, it's theirs. And, you know, we better run and catch up. Yeah. And also one of the things I loved about the conference was that we made sure that there were lots of white women there too, because, you know, I mean, the white women would be in a minority, of course, at the conference, but if the white women weren't there, then how were they going to grow in this whole area? And the white white women had the power. I mean, the white women were doing, especially as executives, you know, not necessarily working mothers, but they were doing really well as executives. So, you know, that became a really important point. It was kind of 
uh, funny because the white women were like, you know, what race? We're a race. Yeah. We're, what do you mean talk about being white? What is there to say? You know? <laughs> it's hard being a woman, you know, and it's like, wait, wait, no, there's more right, to this story, my love. Gender, right? It's still hard. I mean, because, you know, you put white women in a room and tell them to talk about whiteness and it, it is yeah. a big challenge for them, but it worked because they were suddenly aware that they were a race. And the reason why it didn't seem like they were was because they were, they were the norm, you know, and everything Mm -hmm. was judged against whiteness. So it was just part of the whole picture of this, you know, situation. But also I wanted to mention that, you know, I have brought some of this thinking, Janet Wigfield's brilliant thinking, and she's helping me with it to share cancer support. We're doing a conference on June 24th, about health equity. And the interesting thing is that, you know, of course, the idea came to me because of the work we did for women of color at Working Mother. But I realized that after being here just a year, I realized that health equity was very much different by race. It was, you know, all the female cancers that we serve, a woman facing uterine cancer would have different health disparities than a woman facing breast cancer. And so we, I'm sorry, that's not quite right. A black woman would have different health disparities as she faced mm. cancers than Asian woman and so on. And so, you know, and for Hispanic women, it was language. And for black yep. women, it was trust, you know, all kinds of things. So anyway, so I applied this kind of uh, thinking and we're doing a conference called Getting Our Fair Share uh, the 2022 conference to end health disparities, where we break out by race. Wow! Yeah, we break out by race, and and we have panels by race, and everybody gets to listen to the panels, and then they get to meet in their own uh, racial groups and really work on their issues with health disparities. So yeah, so it, it goes forward. <laughs> well, that's tremendous. That was the best part for me is getting to hear all those different points of view that, you know, you're in, I always talk about, you know, your own networks tend to look like you, tend to be like you, you know, like, oh, I'm from the Midwest. I know a lot of people from Cleveland, you know, like that kind of, you replicate yourself. And so to be in, get to be in a room and meet people with different points of view is just such a gift. So different histories, different concerns. It's really interesting. And, and, you know, the other, Raquel, you asked about the other, types of lists that we did. And I think the probably the most, you know, one that made a lot of progress was our NAFI top companies for executive women that Betty Spence ran mm-hmm. or still runs. And that was really, Betty had a vision that was, you know, look at the CEOs. Yeah. Hardcore representation. Where are the women? <laughs> it was all representation. I mean, we really didn't care that much what your programs were because if they weren't working, then, uh, you know, and we were this far down the road with working women from World War II, you know, yeah, but, right. let's make some progress here. And, and, you know, it's still though, a huge battle. There's still so so few, you know, female CEOs. I mean, I look at it this way: that even if it gets up to 25 or 30, whatever, that's still of the Fortune 500. That's still 470 men versus 30 women. <laughs> right. I just think people get excited about the these tiny incremental changes, and it, it means very little in the sea of of male dominance. Well, and that that number can go, you know, one woman retires or leaves the profession and, you know, the percentage falls from like 15% to seven. Yeah, that's especially true when you're measuring (laughs) color on the highest end there. Oh, I know. It's like, you know, woo, you know, like we got to keep Roz Brewer in for, uh, you know. Right. right. If she retires, we're in big trouble. We're in big trouble, you know. (laughs) Uh, Also, friend of Working Mother, you know, spoke at our events and uh, it's, it's awesome now too to be to watch women that we featured at those events and then taking these bigger and bigger roles and it's just, that's so exciting like the it just yeah. getting to follow these women's careers. Rosalind Brewer was a VP in charge of Sam's Club? No, no, she was at um the diaper company in Wisconsin. I can't remember the name of it. Anyway, she was in charge of a division in the paper products, which were turned into diapers. And it was, she was a VP. And then she, we, we had her on our stage and 
she talked about how she would walk around the plant and everybody would turn to the men with her and talk to them. And they would, even though they knew she was a CEO, they'd forget <laughs> during the course <laughs> of the tour. <laughs> it was really wild stuff. But yeah, that was, it was exciting to see women develop their careers, individual women develop their careers and do well. And we spent a lot of energy and, and a lot of time honoring them and putting them in the spotlight, which was really just wonderful. When- and you, you cultivated the relationships with them because that the, yeah. the most amazing thing, Raquel, would be in a room, be sitting in Carol's office and say, well, we could mm-hmm. do this, but we need someone to support it. Carol's like, wait one second. Boop, 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 boop. Hello? Uh-huh. Okay. And then, yeah, yeah they're in. <laughs> boop, boop, boop. Amazing. <laughs> I don't know why she always said boop, boop, boop when she dialed her phone, but she yeah, did. Yeah. <laughs> that was my favorite thing was calling people and asking them to support the right thing. Yeah. <laughs> so, it was so much fun. I still do it. You know, I'm doing it over at Share. It's a joy. It just thrills me to ask people to step up and you know, play the role that they can play in this work. If each person has a different role. Some of them are funders, some of them are researchers, some of them are, you know, executives making decisions, and some of them are assistants who are putting the data together. You know, it's great. Well, it's awesome. And and so now I'm going to take a turn, though, and to say that even though I created two anniversary issues of the best companies for years 25 and 30, mm-hmm. there were a lot of facts I would have loved to have searched for online, but the history of the best companies seemingly has disappeared with the loss this year of workingmother and workingmother.com. And I will tell you that in my current role, someone asked me, she had been in charge, she's on the HR team here, and she uh, she was at Moody's, and they worked for years to get on the list. And she's like, where did all that go? And I just, I honestly don't know. And that the best companies, you know, it's a lot of other parenting titles will touch on these topics. It seemingly is gone. And so, I don't know. I just, I'm rambling at this point now, but yeah, what are you thinking about all of that? First of all, the magazine industry has just been eaten alive by the internet. And that that's right. sad because, you know, someday people are going to say, what was a magazine? And, and you know, <laughs> and, and a magazine is just such a joyful, delightful friend and companion for all of us that, we need them. But so now we have our, you know, not so friendly and not so warm internet that can really do a a lot of damage. But, you know, so it's gone. Working Mother went the way of a lot of magazines that outlasted McCall's, its parent, and it Mm -hmm. outlasted many, 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 many women's magazines. But the economics have just gotten impossible for magazines. And I think that said, of course, I think Saramount is what they changed the name of of Working Mother Media to after I left to go work on Hillary's campaign. And I think they're still doing the the 100 best companies for Saramount. uh, So it's, it's just not under the Working Mother and Premature. But the data goes on the magazine, however, which was the you know, the comfort and the soul of what we did, reaching individuals, that's gone and it's not even online. And to me, that's a, you know, that's a real sacrifice or sacrilege. It's I don't a bummer. Know. <laughs> yeah, I, it's a shame. And I, you know, because when you're doing a magazine, Jennifer, as the editor of the magazine, you know more than me you develop a real relationship with a million readers. You know, it doesn't matter yeah. that a million or two million of them, you develop a relationship with them in terms of knowing, you know, what they're going to respond to. You have to, what they're going to need, what they need now, what they don't need now, you know, right. and it changes all the time with the ebb and flow of our personal lives. So, you know, that not being there for working mothers is sad. You have a, your breadwinner, podcast. And that is so wonderful because honestly, podcasts are very intimate and very helpful on a personal level. So I think that, you know, there are alternatives, but there's nothing that's, you know, as big and bold and brassy and mm-hmm. out there as Working Mother was. And and mm-hmm. that I really mourn. Yeah. I do too. Yeah, yeah. me too. 
Well, on that sad note, Raquel. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, I'm sorry. I shouldn't have used the word mourn. That's terrible. You know what? Uh, you, to your point, though, media evolves. New generations of working mothers. You know, when I uh, moved on from working mother, and you know, you pass it on to a new younger person with younger kids, because I think. You kind of age out of that like hardcore, like Raquel has younger kids, you know, she's dealing with stuff that's like, oh yeah, oh, I kind of remember, you know, I'm dealing with a kid who's in another country right now. That's terrifying. So, you know, like you just, it always needs a new generation and maybe the new generation has new media. Yeah, I think so. I mean, there is a, there's a lot of wonderful ways that working mothers can connect with each other. And I'm, mm-hmm. you know, my, uh, my children are grown, so I don't have that either, that impetus to, to really find out about those services, but it's You're there. on your own, Raquel. See ya. <laughs> yeah, Raquel is there well, it's there in this podcast and, you know, it's there. And I think a lot of those, um, those mediums, but, you know, I mean, I wanted working mother to come to go to TV and to go to radio and to do all this great stuff. And, it just changed. It just changed. Yeah. 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 There's got to be something happier to talk about at the end. <laughs> Come on, there's got to be. <laughs> no, I think there's always a future and uh, media survives. And, um, and working mothers need something each and every day. And so there's a business to be made for it. So, yes. And I, I do think that what every, I mean, for any working mother that's listening, I think that what's important is that we have to keep battling for our rights as working mothers and for the support that we deserve and the support that our children deserve. You know, this, the, the ongoing battle over politics should not be put aside you know, because there's not a magazine for working mothers, but I mean, we all have to pay attention. We all have to really, really do what we can to get our legislators to, to do the right thing and support the women who make up over half the workforce and are, you know, just really in need of, of these benefits. Carol, we just want to thank you so much for joining us. This was a really wonderful way to mark the end of season four of The Breadwinners. We're going to take our own summer vacation, and then we'll be back in the fall for season five. Can you believe it, Jennifer? No, no. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. So we've done about 170-odd episodes. It took that long to get ready to talk to Carol. Exactly. We needed all that prep. Oh my goodness. Well, I'm glad I could add a perspective. And, you know, I salute you for doing this work. And Jennifer, you've always been doing this work. So, you know, keep going, keep going. This is a wonderful podcast. I'm very proud of both of you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And you can find us this summer when we're we're a little quiet. You can find us still on the socials. You can follow us everywhere at Breadwinners Podcast. And a reminder to share our show with your favorite breadwinner. But until next time, keep hustling. This podcast is part of the Sound Advice FM network. Sound Advice FM. Women's voices amplified.